Had to see you. <clears throat> Look, I don't think this is a good idea. I want in to apologize. No. Please, don't apologize. There's one thing I can't stand is women who apologize for wanting sex. I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Joining me today, and I gave her a little pearl handle 38 for our first anniversary, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, Nakia and I are celebrating Noir-vember in style with a neo-noir double feature featuring the debut films of not one, but two sets of cinematic siblings. The Coen Brothers' Blood Simple from 1984, and the Wachowski Sisters' Bound from 1996. Nakia, this is our fourth consecutive year honoring Noir Vember, <laughs> the month-long celebration of film noir invented by professional film fanatic Maria Gates in 2010. Every November, we like to dedicate at least one episode to film noir, and we've actually watched quite a few noir and noir-adjacent movies in other months as well. So I actually think, after horror, I suspect we've watched more noir or noir-adjacent films than any other genre. Hmm. Uh, so listeners can go back and find earlier episodes on The Maltese Falcon, The Big Sleep, Devil Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, Body Heat, Devil in a Blue Dress, and last November, Sweet Smell of Success. And the real miracle is that, unlike with horror, or really anything else we've done, you have liked every single one of these movies. I guess so, sure. Yeah, I think I did. <laughs> you did. We, we have the record. Your own record, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so that, that means noir is actually our most successful milieu. Oh, Lord. And I don't know what that is. I think there must be something about the generally cynical view of humanity and the the bleak worldview that resonates with you. That uh, that makes me sound terrible. Okay, <laughs> sure. Or, or I don't maybe you just like how many of these movies are about women murdering their worthless husbands. Both and. <laughs> They're usually doing it very well dressed, so all of the above. You you've often said that you you couldn't imagine yourself and like when we watch horror movies you're like I wouldn't be in that situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you think do you think you could end up in a noir movie? Are you asking me if I'm planning to kill you? Well, that's was sort of my subtle way at, at getting to that. Well, yes. that's not something I would put on a podcast now, would I? Oh, well, it's not like I'm not already sleeping with one the eye open. The whole point of this is that I, you know, there's some intricate plan for <laughs> killing you that doesn't implicate me in any way. So, no, dear, I do not see myself in a film noir. <laughs> I mean, so, I was thinking about this this week, because, you know, there's a saying that's that's widely attributed to French director Jean-Luc Godard, but which Godard actually said goes all the way back to the silent era. He said, all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun. Mm. And I was thinking about that because, as I said, these are 
both debut features, the Coen Brothers' first movie and the Wachowski sisters' first movie. Neither of them were huge hits when they were released, but they were both well-regarded and got noticed, and I think they proved effective calling cards for these writer-director pairings who then went on to strike big with their second movies, which were respectively Raising Arizona and The Matrix. But I think, and I, I haven't put, you know, I haven't done any stats on this or anything, but I suspect noir is a very common entry point for filmmakers. I think it's one of those genres, and horror is another one, that attracts a lot of first-time directors. They look at they look at it and they're like, I can make that kind of movie. <laughs> um, off the top of my head, Christopher Nolan's first two movies were noirs. Ryan Johnson's first movie, Brick. Paul Thomas Anderson's Hard Eight. Even something like Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, right? It's like, it's an accessible genre to make movies mm -hmm. when you're starting out and you don't have a lot of money to spend. Um, and the Coen brothers basically said that. They, when asked why they did this, they said, well, they asked themselves what they could film cheaply with just a couple of actors in a room <laughs> that would also be commercial enough to get investors. So I think, yeah, man, anybody can end up in a noir. You could, we, 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 could, we could have a noir film right in this apartment. Could we? With the cat? If things went wrong. <laughs> okay, well, the cat's name is Marlo, so that fits well, yeah, right that's, in. Yeah, actually, perfect. Mm -hmm. The cat did it. <laughs> the cat did it. No, the cat will protect me from you. <laughs> okay, so we got two movies to watch today, so we're not going to do a big preliminary conversation, and I'm not going to talk much about the movies before we actually watch them, but let's let's do a little bit. So what, what, if anything, do you actually know about Blood Simple, the first movie we're going to watch? I actually know nothing about Blood Simple. Okay. Did you even know it existed? I knew it existed, but I okay. didn't. Yeah. So Joel and Ethan Coen were in their late 20s when they made this movie, and actually neither of them had much experience at all in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like a lot of directors of that generation, they had shot Super 8 movies as kids. They'd always been interested in film. Joel had done an undergraduate film program at NYU, and he dropped out of graduate school at the University of Austin. Ethan was a philosophy major. He had no film experience, really. Joel's most concrete experience was as an assistant editor on a film we watched way back when The Unenthusiastic Critic was a blog, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. <laughs> And I, and I think you can see some of that DNA in this movie. I think you see some stuff he picked up from that experience, absorbing some of Raimi's camera tricks, and I think there are touches of that sort of comedic, absurdist, almost slapstick sensibility in this movie. Um, and I also just think sort of the makeshift attitude of, again, just first-time filmmakers. Mm-hmm having fun making a low-budget movie. They wrote the screenplay for Blood Simple, and then they, to try to get investors, they actually shot a dummy trailer. It, it wasn't a real trailer because they hadn't shot any of the movie yet or even cast it, but it's like, okay, this is what this movie is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they used Evil Dead star Bruce Campbell, though you can't really tell it's him in the trailer. To serve as cinematographer, they hired their friend Barry Sonnenfeld, fresh out of film school. Um, he would go on to be the cinematographer for their next two movies as well, Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. And he became a big-time cinematographer. He did big when Harry met Sally, Misery, before becoming a director himself with films like The Addams Family and Men in Black. And this is, with both of these movies, I think you see it's it's not just the first movies for the directors, but it's the first movie, like, the whole crew. Basically, the whole crew that made this movie went on to do, like, the next three or four Coen Brothers mm -hmm. movies. And that's true of Bound, too. The same, most of the same people went on to make The Matrix after Bound. 
Anyway, the Coen brothers showed their dummy trailer to potential investors, and they raised about $750,000 to shoot this movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty good. It's not a lot of money <laughs> to make a movie. <laughs> and especially when they didn't know what they... None of them had been on a feature film set before. In fact, Sonnenfeld says that on his first day of shooting, he literally had to have his assistant cameraman show him where the on-off switch was for the camera. That's, this is how inexperienced these people were. Established character actor M. Emmett Walsh, who plays the sleazy private detective in the movie, they say was the first person to actually take them seriously for no reason, and he signed on. Um, Holly Hunter had actually auditioned for the female lead, and the Coens wanted her, but she had just gotten a big break on Broadway, and she wasn't available when they wanted to shoot. She was the one who recommended her friend Frances McDormand, who then obviously went on to a long professional and personal relationship with the Coen brothers. The investors hated it. The studios weren't interested in it. They spent about nine months trying to find a distributor, but then they started entering it in film festivals. It won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. It was well-received at Toronto and the New York Film Festival, and it got an indie distributor out of that. It didn't make a lot of money, but it made its its money back, and it, it definitely got these guys noticed for their somewhat peculiar sensibilities. How, how do you feel about the Coen brothers? I'm a fan of the Coen brothers. Um, I've seen a number of their movies. I think they have just, it's, it's a really interesting perspective, really great at world building, some of the best characters in film. You know, up until recently, <laughs> uh, when, you know, they were sort of pushed on this question of the lack of diversity in their films and their response was a bit sort of glib. And yeah, this was a few years ago during the Oscars yeah. So White conversation and they were very smug and very yeah, glib just a and very dismissive lack of, of thought the or care. Um, so and that was unfortunate. Yeah, that, that. that was just, um, it was just disappointing because right. it's like that question is worthy of some thought and some attention. And even if you come away saying like, that's just not, that's not how we approach our films. And that's not, but they were something like, well, we don't have green people or aliens or dogs. Like, it was right. something very silly. And it's just like, the, so it was dismissive of what was a worthwhile discussion. Yeah. Particularly at that time. Um, and so that was just like, that's disappointing. I thought you were smarter than that. I thought you were more thoughtful than that. I thought you were more intentional than that. Yeah. Now, do we feel any better that the new, their latest, and it's, it's Joel without Ethan. This is, this the first time this has ever happened, but their version of oh the Macbeth Hamlet oh Macbeth yes 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 is is Denzel it's colorblind casting it's yeah. not it's not just Denzel it's mm -hmm. the the guy who plays Macduff and his whole family are black and it's so maybe they're coming around a little bit and we can start to forgive them possibly it, and it wasn't even like oh I hate them or I can't watch them I still like I will still sit and watch the Big Lebowski whenever whenever I come across it on yeah. television it was just like that's disappointing like I was just disappointed yeah. in no, that I agree with that. But I, I do love almost all of it. Um, yeah, I mean, Miller's Crossing, uh, Fargo, Fargo, Old Country, No Country for Old Men. Like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Coen Brothers. Um, and I also, and I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about this in this quite this way before. But thinking about it this week in this context, realizing how many of those are really sort of noir mm -hmm. plots, if not stylistically noir. And mm -hmm. we've talked in the past about how it's. What the term even means right, is flexible. Right. It's sometimes it's the kind of story, sometimes it's the kind of filmmaking. Right. But their stories, their plotting are very noir. It's that, you know, well, I mean the Big Lebowski is <laughs> is a a Raymond Chandler type mystery with a very different right. guy playing the detective. Right. But it's still the same sort of spiraling mystery and 
Fargo is a very mm. noir that's, you know, the guy who gets in over his head and does a stupid crime. And again, things just spiral out of control. Um, no Country for Old Men is that kind of story. A lot of their stuff is, I would say, noir-inspired, even if the the filmmaking is not stylistically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of the, I mean, Miller's Crossing is very the, yeah. direct. Man Who Wasn't There is very directly noir, mm-hmm. this movie is. But yeah, they, they have that the right sensibility for that, I think. Even something like Inside Lewin Davis mm. is that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't know, remember that there's necessarily crime or anything I in that movie. Think so, yeah. Actually, I've only, that's probably one of the few that I've only watched once. I would need to go back and watch mm-hmm. Llewellyn Davis. As Nathaniel Rich writes at Criterion, talking about this movie, the traditional noir hero is a decent moral man who, brought low by injustice or fate, turns toward criminality in a moment of weakness in the hope of redemption. There, I mean, there's Jerry Lundergaard from Fargo right there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first crime begets a second and a third, and before long the hero is spiraling to moral bottom. And actually, Rich here invokes Macbeth, and this is before, I think, the Coen brothers had even decided they were doing Macbeth. But yeah, Macbeth, again, is one of those stories where somebody makes a bad decision and it goes wrong. And Rich says, this condition is shared by heroes of nearly all of the Coen brothers' films. H.I. McDonough in Raising Arizona, The Dude, Barton Fink, Llewellyn Davis, each pulls a thread that gradually unravels his entire life until it lies untangled at his feet. So we're going to go watch the movie that started all of that. Okay. Uh, Roger Ebert called it one of the best of the modern films noir, a grimy story of sleazy people trapped in a net of betrayal and double cross. Sounds perfect. Yes. What are you expecting from this? I'm expecting to enjoy I don't know that there's been a Coen Brothers film that I haven't liked. So okay. So I'm expecting to enjoy this. Okay. Well, that might make for a bad conversation, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> Blood Simple is currently streaming on both HBO and the Criterion channel, and it's available to rent from all the other usual places. So when we get back, we will talk about Blood Simple. I got a job for you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it pays right and it's legal. I'll do it. It's not strictly legal. Pays right, I'll do it. It's in reference to that gentleman and my wife. The more I think about it, the more irritated I get. Could you tell me what it is you want me to do, or is it a secret? It's no joke. Why am I kill Well. Well, well. What do you think? You're an idiot. So this won't, won't interest you, huh? I didn't say that. All I said was you're an idiot. Yeah, you've been thinking about it for so much, it's driving simple. I'll give you ten thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to do a murder. I'm too murder. Trust you not to go simple on me and do something stupid. I mean, really stupid. <laughs> now, why should I trust you? 
for the money. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Blood Simple. So I realized that this is another movie in, I think, one of our favorite genres that we've talked about in the past. I think we talked about it during our discussion of Dog Day Afternoon. This is a movie about bad criminals. Mm-hmm. And that's actually my favorite thing about this movie. It is a smart movie about stupid people. Uh, what, what did you think of this one? I really like this. I I mean, I I said, you know, before we watched the film, I imagine that I would. It, I tend to enjoy Coen Brothers. Um, it was interesting, this being their first film, and sort of seeing a lot of the things that you see mm-hmm. in later films. But yeah, it's almost with the Coen Brothers, it's almost like the, the plot is beside the point. You're just having a good time spending time with these people, even though they're terrible people. I mean, that's true. But on the other hand, and this is something Roger Ebert talked about in his review... This thing is plotted to a T. Yeah, it's very tight. And he just talks about, because it is, the the overall effect of it is that the plot is really complicated Mm -hmm. and convoluted. But everything is logical. Mm -hmm. Like, everything is, proceeds one thing from the next. You can see how it happens. You can see how the misunderstandings happen. He said, consider, for example, the famous sequence in which a man is in one room and his hand is nailed to the windowsill (laughs) in another room. How he got into that predicament and how he tries to get out of it all makes perfect sense when you see the film. But if you got an assignment in a film class that began with a close-up of that hand snaking in through the window and being nailed down, how easy would it be to write the setup scenes? And it is. It's all logical the way they get there. Mm-hmm. He says they are masters of plot. Every individual detail seems to make sense and every individual choice seems logical, but the choices and details form a bewildering labyrinth. And I think that's true of all their movies. Mm-hmm. Even Lebowski, which is I mean, one that, yeah, the plot of which I still could not <laughs> recount, but I know it all makes sense. <laughs> it, I trust that it's not just confusing for no. confusion's sake. No. But yeah, it is. You would know this was a Coen Brothers movie. Yes. Even though, and I do think parts of it feel amateurish. I think there are parts of it where it's like, this is almost like a student film. Uh, We said that about Eraserhead, too. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're watching it, and it's like, it is a student film, but you know there's a major talent Mm -hmm. behind this film. Mm -hmm. So you said said the plot is beside the point. You're just sort of enjoying being with these people, Mm -hmm. right? Well, I'm I'm amused by it, I guess. Amused, okay. (laughs) Because this is one of my questions. Are we rooting for anyone in this movie? So this probably says more about me than anything. I was rooting for, is it Visser or Visser? Visser. Visser. <laughs> the worst, most well, reprehensible well, person But for a while the there, he seems like the smartest one. He's definitely the smartest one. So I'm at least going to be rooting for the smartest criminal. <laughs> just like, well, you're thinking about it. M. Emmett Walsh's sleazy private detective. His whole characterization is just perfect. Like, one, the, like, sweat budget of this film... And I, I kept trying to go back to, like, Coen Brother films and sweat. Like, Barton Fink had that Barton scene. Barton like, Fink it was, like, is a really sweating wet. movie. It's just, like, it's just, that just makes you, ugh. <laughs> um, but, so Visser's character in this, like, s- just sweatiness in this, like, too tight yellow <laughs> leisure suit with the hat. And then there's always, like, a fly on him. Yeah. That he never bothers to, like, shoo away <laughs> as if he's decaying while we're watching. Like, he's just dying in the scene. So it's just a perfect character. And I'm sure part of that was just how they made the movie. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. hot. <laughs> They're shooting in Texas. And... But it was perfect. Because it just made him all the more sort of despicable and reprehensible. Like, yeah. the, it, he was physically 
a terrible thing, but he was smart until he, you know, left his lighter behind and then he just got a mess <laughs> in. Did you, I didn't, I don't know if this occurred to you, the fact that he drives a VW bug. It's the same VW that's in exactly. uh, Lebowski, the yeah. Private, the yeah. private detective in The Big Lebowski yes. also drives a VW I bug. I did pick up on that. And they asked the Coens about that and they said, well, we sort of think of him as a cockroach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's just, and I think he even make, has a line, something about if you cut my head off, I'd still crawl around. And mm. it's like, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so he so he was your favorite character. I mean, so Visser was probably number one. Number two is probably Frances McDormand's character. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think, other than cheating on her partner, she did anything wrong. That's what I asked myself at the end of that movie. I'm like, did she commit any crimes? Did she do anything wrong? I don't think she did. And I don't think she does either. No. I mean, she obviously, you know. She cheats on her, but she's actually left her husband at that point. the wrong so. person, but other than right. that. But she doesn't, she's not a femme fatale. No. She doesn't plot no. her husband's death or anyone's death. She doesn't... Even though there are moments in the film that sort of faint towards maybe she is, I kept wanting, thinking that she was going to be in on it somehow. Me too. I like, wondered that too. There were moments when Ray, after Ray did his stupid shit, and he called her, and she's just she was like cold, not cold, but like a little bit, just distant enough. Yeah. Where she, she could have very well been like, I need to start separating myself from you because I know that you're... Even from that opening scene, I think, when they're in the car driving mm-hmm. and it's raining and she's just left her husband and she's like, why are you helping me? Mm-hmm. And I don't... Maybe that's just playing with the, the tropes of noir, too. Mm-hmm. I think we are trained to expect her right. to not be to be as good and, and innocent yeah. as she is. Mm-hmm. She, we, we assume she's manipulating him. Mm-hmm. We assume she's going to have him kill her husband or something. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think she ever I don't think does. so. Unless I miss something. I don't... I don't think, I mean, yeah, other right. than the cheating, I don't think she does anything yeah. wrong. She picks, she has terrible taste in dudes, but. You know. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> other than that, good taste in apartments, though. Uh, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can we rent that apartment cheap in Austin? It was very, the was? windows it were amazing. Great windows in that apartment she ends up in. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the crime really starts with Marty, mm-hmm. her husband. Because mm-hmm. first he hires Visser. To follow them. To follow them and determine that they're. They're cheating, she and Ray. Mm-hmm. And then is it, it's after he tries to grab her. He tries to go get her and bring her back. And she kicks him in the balls and stuff. It's after that that he decides. They need to die. Yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> I've decided I'm not okay with this. Mm-hmm. I need to have them killed. Yeah. And Visser says, well, I'll do anything if it's legal. <laughs> if you pay me enough. <laughs> and, right. And then he says, well, Marty says, well, it's not strictly legal. <laughs> and he says, well. So he, he takes the job. For $10,000, which is not a lot of money to kill it's, two people. It's not a lot of money. But, I mean, it's it's a lot of money to him. I guess. Especially since his plan, it turns out, is not to actually right. kill them. Just kill the one person that you actually made the deal with that could rat you out. Right. Mm-hmm. So he, this is this is pre-Photoshop. I don't know how he fakes it's the photos. It's amazing. But he he takes photos and then makes it look like he shot both. He shot both of them in bed. Yeah, uh, and gives those to Marty and gets paid and then kills Marty. Kills Marty. Mm-hmm. Well done. And this is just the start of this incredible sequence of events in which every single person gets everything wrong. Yeah, I mean Ray and Abby do not know Visser exists. Right. So he's like this random factor. In a story they think they understand, but they never they never meet him, they never see him, they have no idea he exists. Mm-hmm. So everything Visser does, they think the other one, one of the did. other one did. Yep. <laughs> so then, so Ray comes across Marty's body, 
thinking Marty is dead at this point. Marty's sitting in his chair, bleeding Mm -hmm. out. And he thinks Abby did it. Right. Because her gun, the gun that Marty had given her for their first year anniversary. Her little pearl handle 38. Was on the scene. So, yes. Right. So, logical conclusion. Sure. Abby killed her husband. He then does illogical things after that, though. <laughs> this is where you this is where you took issue and started yelling at the people on the screen. Because I don't... You can't just, like, come upon a body and clean it and just decide what you're going to do. Like, that takes a lot of planning. There was a lot of blood. <laughs> there was so much blood. On wood flooring. <laughs> you are never, that ever going to get that out. shit is not coming out. You took your shirt off and you were like, let me sop this up. Let me just mop this up with my shirt. <laughs> you're leaving DNA fingerprints all over the fucking place. And then you're just dragging this body, inevitably dripping blood everywhere behind you. And you put the body in your car. <laughs> blood, blood, blood everywhere. Blood everywhere. When you know there's an incinerator in the back of the fucking establishment. That confused me. Because he drives by the incinerator and he throws his bloody shirt in it. But doesn't throw the body. But doesn't think to just throw the body in the incinerator. No, he's just going to drive this body somewhere. Which is what Marty had suggested Visser do with, with their, bodies. their bodies. So we we assume that might have worked, but he, it doesn't occur to him somehow. No, no. He puts it in his car, which is not <laughs> a leather interior. It's a cloth interior. <laughs> so you're just soaking up blood into the, the seats of the car. You're driving to the who knows the hell where. <laughs> And then we realize that Marty's not dead. <laughs> and then we hear Marty make a little sound from the back seat. So he veers off the this side of the road. This is one of the great sequences. It's a, it's a really it's, ridiculous sequence. It's you awesome. Know, I, quoted, I quoted Godard earlier saying that all you need is a girl and a gun. I was also reminded watching this of Howard Hawks who said something like, all you need to, for a movie is like two or three great scenes and no bad ones. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie has at least two or three great scenes and that is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, so he realizes that Marty's still alive and just sort of freaks out, veers off the side of the road, and just runs from the car. Runs like, right. <laughs> like he's just terrified that Marty's going to leap up and... And then looks back and realizes the body's no longer in the car. <laughs> and Marty, who apparently can survive a lot of shit, Marty's a, yeah. is like crawling on the <laughs> road trying to get away. And Ray, just like terrible decisions. <laughs> What does he even do? I think he he thinks about clubbing Marty to death with with the shovel. shovel. Right. But then he can't, I think he just can't bring himself to do that. Yeah. So he picks Marty up, at which point Marty coughs blood all Like vomits blood all down the back of his shirt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Uh, And then he he takes Marty out into the field (laughs) and digs a hole. So in the process of putting Marty in the car, when he first discovers his body at the bar, he puts the gun in Marty's pocket. Yes. So Marty is armed at this point. So as he's digging the hole, the grave for Marty, and he's put Marty in the grave, Marty just takes the gun out of his pocket and, like, tries to shoot him. Yeah. This is this is one of the great Chekhov's gun sequences mm-hmm. in movies, too. Because we have seen earlier, we saw when Visser took Abby's gun, mm-hmm. there were three bullets in the gun. Right. He puts one in Marty. Right. Then he leaves the gun in Marty's office. Ray, when he comes, I don't know, is he like steps on the gun? He kicks it somehow. And it goes off somehow. It's very So there's there's one bullet. There's only one bullet left in that gun. So, yeah, Marty's lying there in the shallow grave. He picks the gun up and tries to kill Ray. And it clicks like two or three times. Mm -hmm. But we think the gun is empty at that point. Right. Even though we know... If we're counting, there's one bullet yeah, so left, one in, bullet that left gun. in that gun. Yeah. So, so what does Ray do then? He very slowly grabs the gun, <laughs> takes the gun away from Marty, from Marty, 
and then just continues to bury him alive. Because <laughs> that makes a whole lot of sense. And then, like, just beats on the, the dirt with the shovel as if that's... Like, just packing down the earth do around something. him. Yeah, and, and there's a great shot where they pull back... <laughs> It's morning. It's morning, like first dawn. Yeah. And you see the tire tracks <laughs> into the field that he's driven into that leads to where he just buried this body. So, like, he just crop circled the crime scene, like, body buried here. And then initially the car won't start. That, that shot makes me it's laugh a perfect so hard. Shot. It, it's just and it's, like, if you didn't know it was a Coen Brothers movie until then, <laughs> that shot would tell you that. It's like the shot in Fargo where Steve Buscemi buries the money mm-hmm. and then it he looks up and it's like endless highway on either side, all exactly the same. He's never going to be able to find that money again. My problem with this and why Ray is not my favorite character <laughs> is because he's making dumbass decisions, but he's doing it slowly. It's so slow. He's taking so much time. If you want to be stupid, be quick about your stupidity. <laughs> like, okay, at least have speed on your side where you're making quick decisions. Well, this is what I'm... He's not very bright. He is not. He's but he's not doing smart stupid enough. shit and he's doing it slow as shit. And I'm like, okay. And this is why I like... This movie, it's why I like Coen Brothers movies. It's like, it's why I like movies about bad criminals. And I think you have said before, we all think we would be the genius yeah, you're in not, that situation. Right. You're not. You're <laughs> not. We're just... You're going to be the person putting the bu- our body in the back of your car. Like, no plan. <laughs> no plan with what you're doing right now. It's what Mickey Rourke says in Body Heat, where he says, you know, if you commit a crime, there's 50 ways you can fuck it up. If you think of 25 of them, you're a genius, and you ain't no genius. Yeah. That's what the title means, too. The title, Blood Simple, it's a it's a quote from a Dashiell Hammett detective novel. And it's just talking about that thing where you you go simple. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's that kind of that thing where the murder begets murder, begets murder. And it's like, you're not thinking clearly, and it just becomes this chain of events. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens here. So, yeah, he's uh, he's cleaned up. He thinks he's cleaned up Abby's impulsive act. Right. He's done no such thing. <laughs> And even if she had mercy, he, he would have just, he just made it worse. In, in no circumstance would he be helping anybody. <laughs> but yeah, so he goes back to Abby's fabulous apartment and he's like, you know, I saw what you did. I fixed it. She has absolutely no idea what the fuck what you're talking, talking about, dude. About. I don't know what happened. Did you have a fight with Marty, she says? Because he's covered in blood. He walks in covered in blood and he's like, I took care of it. And it's great because before Marty is murdered, he and Ray have a conversation where Ray, where Marty's basically like, she'll say to you, like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, Marty has planted the seed of doubt in his mind. And so when she says that, when he comes to her, you know, saying, I, I know that you murder, you know, uh, and she's, she's, he's like, oh, that's, that's what I know what you're saying, that you're lying. And so you have two people who are both simultaneously in love with each other, but then like fundamentally can't trust each other. And both of them think they're each a murderer. Right. So, good foundation for a relationship. <laughs> I did like, you mentioned that earlier scene where he where he went to see Marty, where Ray went to see Marty. Mm-hmm. That's the bug zapper scene, which I, it's another great scene. That bug zapper is just snapping away behind Marty's head as they talk. Um, but that was a ballsy move, because Marty just found out he's sleeping with a guy's yeah. wife. And then Ray goes to see him and says, You owe me two weeks pay. You owe me two weeks pay. <laughs> so you got to respect that. I mean... You know. Okay, so everything's taken care of now, right? No, everything's there's, much, there's much no worse. There's no problem left. It's much, much worse. Mar- Marty's, Marty's dead and buried, and uh, Visser got away with the money, and everybody's fine. No, everything's much, much worse. Ray and Abby live nobody happily lives. ever after no, nobody together. Nobody lives happily ever after. 
It's around this time that Visser realized that he left his very distinctive lighter. <laughs> at, Somewhere at the crime at scene. At the crime scene. Um, after having been smarter than everybody else and much more careful than everybody mm-hmm. else. So he goes back to the bar to try to find his lighter. I think he also realizes that Marty had kept one of the photos. Yes. And so he's also trying to find the photo that allegedly showed the murder of right. both Marty, uh, Marty, of uh, Ray and um, Francis McDormand. So he goes back to the bar looking for his lighter, trying to break into the safe because he thinks the photo is in there, can't get into the safe. At the same time... Francis doesn't find the lighter, right? The lighter find is the lighter. under the dead it's, fish. It's under the, the dead fish. <laughs> Francis McDormand comes back at the same time, sort of sees the scene and thinks that Ray and Marty must have had a fight, that Ray was trying to break into the, the, into the safe. safe to get money. <laughs> And See, this is what I'm saying. It's yeah. all logical. It's all follows in a logical progression of misunderstandings. It is. It is. Well, with Ray and Francis, like, they could just have a conversation. At no point does he say, well, very late does he say, I, I think you killed Marty. Right. Because I found your gun at the scene. And then at no point does she say, oh, well, I thought you robbed and then killed Marty. Right. But even if they'd had that conversation, would it have mattered? Would they Probably have believed not. each other? Probably not. No. Because, again, they don't know Visser exists. That's true. <laughs> oh, there's that little dream sequence in there somewhere, too, mm-hmm. where Marty turns up. And I like that. I don't usually like dream sequences, but I like that one just because that seems like something that could happen. Absolutely. Because I mean, he wouldn't die. Ray, Ray left Marty yeah. in a shallow little grave. He would not die. And didn't have the balls to just kill him. And so, yeah, he very well. The only thing that cued me in was that he wasn't, like, dirty or anything. Like, he right. would have been dirty. Right. I was like, he absolutely could have. <sighs> Gotten out of that grave and come back and found her. Yeah. But yeah, it was a great scene. So now somewhere in here, Visser decides that they must have his lighter. Right. And maybe the photograph. I don't know about that. But so then he's now stalking them. Mm-hmm. He calls Abby, <laughs> I guess, to find out where she is mm-hmm. and hangs up. But that's what Marty used to do. Right. So now she thinks Marty just called her. So she, as far as she knows, Marty's still alive. Right. This whole movie is people thinking people are dead that well, are actually alive thing, and alive that are actually dead. The great thing there is you mentioned the the sort of bug, bug zapper. The way that sound is its own thing in this film. So, mm-hmm. like, the reason she thinks it's Marty is because there's a computer in Marty's office. Yes. That, like, blips Every now and again. So when Visser calls her, she hears the blip of the computer. And so she thinks, oh, it's Marty in his office. Right. There's that noise. There's like the sound of ceiling fans. There's a scene where Ray and Francis are standing at the door and they're sort of arguing. And someone like throws a newspaper at the screen door. And it sounds like a gun just went off. (laughs) Yeah. Like the sound in this film is really good. Yeah. Okay. So she gets off the phone. Like, like, so yeah, Visser calls her and hangs up. Mm -hmm. She gets off the phone and says that was Marty. Mm Mm-hmm. Ray knows Marty is dead, so now he thinks she's lying about who just called her, that she has some other boyfriend on the side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it all just gets worse and worse. So much worse. And then I think we're, we're pretty close to the final virtuoso set piece here, mm-hmm. which is in Abby's apartment. Visser shoots Ray yes. from outside the window. Um, and then becomes it becomes this cat and mouse game between Abby and Visser, although Abby doesn't even know who Visser is. Who Visser is. And then, yeah, that famous sequence where they're in two different rooms. <laughs> Visser reaches around from that from the bathroom, tries to open the living room window. Abby 
stabs his hand and nails him to the windowsill. And then he starts shooting through the wall. Yes. Which is just visually it's a, a fantastic very cool shot. sequence. It's a very cool shot. Because you just get these like rays of light coming into the dark room. And then he starts punching the wall. He just becomes this like unstoppable force. Yeah, he's like a monster coming, trying to break through the wall to get to her. But she becomes very calm mm-hmm. and knows what she has to do. Mm-hmm. She remembers her gun is in the apartment, so she walks out. She goes back to the apartment. She picks up her gun, and she waits for him yeah. to come for her. And she fires the one shot from and that she, gun. The one bullet left in that gun. And she hits him. And she hits him. And then she says, I'm not scared of you, Marty. <laughs> and Visser just starts laughing, which I love. Again, this whole movie of just everybody getting everything wrong. He just, he's lying there dying. He starts laughing. And he says, well, I'll if sure I see him, him, I'll be sure to tell him, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> and that is blood simple. That is blood simple. So you think Abby's going to be okay? <laughs> she's going to walk, she's going to leave that room, walk around to the bathroom, look in and be like, who the hell are who you is this? that I just killed? <laughs> I mean, she'll be fine. <laughs> That didn't look like the type of landlord that was going to call the cops on you. So, you know, just... A little spack will take care of those holes in the wall. Put the body in the incinerator and move the fuck on with your life and make better choices. Well, again, this is what I was trying to think is, like, where is she left at the end of this movie? Like, she can call the cops because she didn't commit any crimes. She did nothing wrong. Now, whether the cops are going to be able to untangle... Right, everything that happened. ...how all of this happened and how she's innocent in it. Is is another matter, I guess. What what would you do if you're if you're Abby at this point? Leave the country. (laughs) (laughs) Flee immediately. (laughs) You you talk about bad decisions, so I'm going to put you in the role. Well, that's what I'm. That's partially why I don't commit crime because I have not thought it all through. (laughs) Like I haven't figured it out. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, easy answer is okay. Get the fuck out of Dodge. You're right there by Mexico. Get the drive to Mexico. Get the hell out. Ebert talked about that, too. He said he said a lot has been written about the visual style of Blood Simple, but I think the appeal of the movie is more elementary. It keys into three common nightmares. One, you clean and clean, but there's still blood all <laughs> over the place. Two, you know you have committed a murder, but you're not sure quite how or why. And three, you know you have forgotten a small detail that will eventually get you into a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you are not under pressure here. You're a smart woman. You have the time to think about, okay, what does Abby do? And your answer is just drive to Mexico. Exactly. I'm going to Thelma and Louise it. Yeah, Thelma and Louise it. How'd that work out? Get the, it didn't work out well for them, but they, they were, <laughs> there was different circumstances for them. Um, they were being actively chased. <laughs> She's not as of yet. Like, nobody would be looking for her. Yeah, I guess that's true. So she could just go and start over, figure something else out. I don't, I don't have high hopes that's going to work out well for well, her. Well, probably not, but that's because things don't work out well for most people in Coen Brothers films. No, it's not that kind of no. moral universe. Not at which all. Which is why they're so suited to this kind of story. The only person that came out of this clean was the black dude. <laughs> yeah, we didn't talk about him. Which is actually who Marty thought Abby she was, was sleeping with, with yeah. in the beginning. Because mm-hmm. yeah. he's a racist piece of shit. Yeah. Okay, anything else to say about Blood Simple? No, I really liked it. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you could definitely see they weren't fully formed, but they were pretty formed Mm -hmm. um, in terms of their aesthetic and and who they would be as directors. I do think in terms of filmmaking, I think Raising Arizona is like a quantum leap Mm -hmm. from this movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that is a nearly perfect movie. Yeah, it is pretty brilliant. 
But yeah, I mean, the use of like windows, light and dark, all kinds of, there was, it's the ceiling fan, the ceiling fan, it's just, it's a really, it's a very efficient movie. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in like the best way possible. Yeah. Okay. So the first half of our noir double feature was a success. Sure. We will now move on to Bound. Okay. You'll be clean and we'll be rich. Jesus, that's beautiful. You're this goddamn smart. How did you ever get caught? Had a partner once. She fucked me. I won't. I think we're gonna find out. <sighs> okay, so what do you know about Bound? Jennifer Tilly. Jennifer Tilly. Mm -hmm. And you were a... Jennifer Tilly fan. I do enjoy Jennifer Tilly, yes. <laughs> I think this is one of her finest, <laughs> finest roles, if not her finest role. So what's your experience with the Wachowskis? Well, it's funny. So when we started this, um, I went back to look at both the filmographies of the Coen brothers mm -hmm. and the Wachowski sisters. And I realized that considering how much I loved The Matrix when it came out and yeah. still really appreciate it as a film, I have not seen... I actually have not work. either. I've not made an effort to see more of their stuff. And I, don't and know, I know a lot of their stuff is considered, you know, it's sort of love it or hate it stuff. Mm -hmm. It's either people consider a lot of their movies to be bombs, mm -hmm. expensive bombs. Mm -hmm. And then they're, they have their defenders. And I just, I haven't seen, I haven't seen Cloud Atlas. Mm -mm. I haven't seen Speed Racer. No. I watched a little of Jupiter Ascending and didn't get very far with that. Yeah, I've only seen, <laughs> I think, The Matrix. I didn't even watch the sequels of those because they, no, they didn't get did great I. reviews. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if they're just one, sort of two directors that's like, I think there's something to be said for, like, they have vision and they go for it. Absolutely. And so if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but it doesn't work big. And so there's still maybe value in watching it just because it's like but a But they swing for the fences. Yeah. So I think part of it is like, okay, you go into it and maybe you have low expectations for what it is, but I, I imagine there are kernels of something you can take from every film, mm -hmm. even if it's like a total bomb. <laughs> Just because they're brilliant. Like, they're going to do some try to really do something brilliant. Right. I find it interesting. It's just random coincidence, I guess, having paired these two movies together. Both of these sibling pairs mm -hmm. are releasing their first separate movies this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Macbeth is coming out, which is Ethan without Joel, or Joel without Ethan, I think. I, I think don't Joel remember. without Ethan. And then I think it's Lily is not involved in the new Matrix right. movie. It's yeah. just Lana. Yeah. So it's interesting that the timing of that, I don't know what it means. I don't know either. Um, okay. So written and directed by the Wachowski sisters, uh, who grew up right here in Chicago. Hmm. They were college dropouts. They worked in comic books for a while. And then they wrote the screenplay for a movie called Assassins, a 1995 Antonio Banderas action movie that I confess I have not seen. It was pretty much a bomb, and apparently it turned out so bad that they wanted to take their names off of it. But then they wrote this screenplay, and Lana Wachowski has said that this film started with her struggling with the depiction of LGBT characters in cinema. And specifically citing a lot of movies that you and I have talked about in the past. Psycho, Dressed to Kill... Mm. Silence of the Lambs, and Sleepaway Camp, oh, she Jesus. specifically invoked. Um, and she said she wanted to make a genre movie where the queer characters were the heroes. So that's how Bound came about. And, of course, because of that, no one wanted to make it. According to Tilly, 
Warner Brothers said that they would give them 15 to 20 million dollars to make the movie if the Wachowskis were willing to make the lead character a man. Um, they were not willing to do not that, point. obviously. Mm-hmm. So finally, Dino De Laurentiis, who had produced Assassins, agreed to finance it to the tune of about $3 million. Gina Gershon, who had, I think she had made Showgirls at that point, but I don't know that Showgirls was out. But anyway, her agents categorically refused to let her do this movie, hmm. um, telling her that she was ruining her career. But she said, I never play, get to play the hero and get the chick. I mean, it's the typical part I've watched my whole life, and it's never been a woman. I left my agents over it. So she fired her agents and took this movie. Now, the part she ended up playing, Jennifer Tilly was originally cast to play. Jennifer Tilly didn't want to play, in, in stereotypical terms, as a butch part and a femme part. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Tilly did not want to play the femme part, <laughs> which is what she ended up playing. Because um, I think she said, you know, I've I've done that before. She I want to do be, that if it was a, yeah. I want to be the other yeah. one. I think when you watch it, you will agree that it worked out exactly the way it should have. But we we can talk about that. Anyway, there's more to talk about after we watch the movie. But I think we'll we'll just go watch it. Um, a few reactions. This movie was not a big hit. I don't think it even probably made its budget back. But it did. It did get the Wachowskis noticed. Not always in a good way. Some of the reviews were terrible. Time Out called it one of the most blatantly calculated, artistically bankrupt Hollywood calling cards in ages. This by this by the numbers neo noir has one gimmick: dyke desire and no ideas. And they basically accused it of cynical courting of lascivious media hype. Mm. I, I don't think that's remotely fair. Roger Ebert, on the other hand, gave it four stars and compared it favorably to Blood Simple. Bound is one of those movies that works you up, rings you out, and leaves you gasping. It's pure cinema spread over several genres. It's a caper movie, a gangster movie, a sex movie, and a slapstick comedy. It's amazing to discover all this virtuosity and confidence in two first-time filmmakers. I remember really liking this movie. I have not seen it since I didn't see it in theaters, so I probably saw it on VHS <laughs> a year or two after it came out. I remember really liking it. I have not watched it since then, so I'm actually excited to watch this one. Okay. So when we get back, we will talk about Bound. For me, stealing has always been a lot like sex. <laughs> Two people who want the same thing, they get in a room, they start to plan. It's kind of like flirting. You're having second thoughts. I'm just making a point. I want to see the money. It's over two million dollars. Welcome to the family. You're amongst good people here. I have a tattoo. Would you like to see it? These people are serious. Johnny! He's making too much noise. Here. Put it in his mouth. Caesar is going to get the money. He's going to bring it by the apartment. He's going to count it. Where is it now? It's in a case on his desk. It's perfect. The best things in life are free. Susan King for the birds and bees. Where's my money? With mine, I want the money. Where's my money? We'll be rich. The money! All night long, I listen to the sound of money. Jennifer Tilly. Gina Gershon. Joe Pantoliano. Ho! 
You don't want to shoot me, do you? Do you? I know you don't. Caesar, you don't know. Bound. You were Caesar, all Caesar. You made me help him. You have to help me. Oh, God. Oh, God, he's coming. And we're back again. During the break, Nikki and I watched Bound. Nikia, how did this one work for you? I like this. It's actually a good movie. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And I wasn't, like I said, I hadn't seen it since practically when it came out. I was a little worried. I didn't remember it that well. Mm. And y- you never know. It could have been mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm sorry we watched that. But no, <laughs> it's it's actually a really good movie. And I think it pairs really well with Blood Simple. Mm-hmm. They're the same kinds of movies in that they're both that sort of taut, efficient, noir thriller. Mm -hmm. They take place over a very short period of time, just like a couple of days each one. And they both sort of have the same kind of cascading bad decisions. (laughs) Decisions that lead to more and more trouble as they go along. Yeah. I do think, in contrast, I said Blood Simple was a smart movie about stupid people. Mm-hmm. I like everybody is smart in this movie. Yes. Uh, with the possible exception of, you know, like, Johnny. <laughs> Johnny is all in. So He's a Chris Maloney. I appreciate Chris Maloney whenever he shows up. Psychopathic character. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right, so what did, you, what did you think of this one? Let's talk about this. Yeah, I really, I really liked it. I mean, in the same way that Blood Simple, it, there doesn't seem to be a wasted scene. Everything counts and everything matters. It both leaned into sort of neo-noir tropes, but at the same time subverted them. So in the way that Frances McDormand's character in Blood Simple, the entire time we were waiting for her to be the manipulative femme fatale. Right. We were waiting for Jennifer Tilly's um, Vi to be the same. Right. We were waiting for the double cross. Right. And it didn't come. Yeah. And it even, it starts, the very first shots are a flash forward to Gina Gershon's Corky Mm -hmm. Tied up on the floor, and we hear snippets of dialogue and voiceover and everything. So we know this is going to go bad. Right. And there's a couple of those flash forwards throughout the movie. So yeah, we are totally waiting for for Vi to double cross her. Yes. At some point, and that's not actually what turns out to happen. No. Um, I do think it's one of the great things about genre is that you take this; it has all of these recognizable tropes. Mm-hmm. Then you can subvert it like that, mm-hmm. so the audience has these expectations going into it, and you you can you can play with those expectations. You can play against those expectations. Obviously, beginning with the casting of this movie and the roles. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it could have easily been exploitative Mm -hmm. and very much from the male gaze, having, you know, obviously someone like Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon as lesbian lovers. Uh, But it didn't feel that way Mm -hmm. at all. Even the one sort of full-on sex scene that they do, it's shot in a way that doesn't feel... Like leering, no, right? Um, it doesn't feel like superfluous. Like a lot of times, sex you're like they added this because they needed a sex scene, and like right. we have to do. And it didn't feel that way. So yeah, it they was... were they were. Uh, let's talk about that because they were actually very deliberate about that. Mm. Um, first of all, they hired lesbian writer and activist Susie Bright to serve as a intimacy coordinator mm. mm-hmm. and just kind of a authentic lesbianism <laughs> <laughs> consultant on this movie. And that was certainly 
you know, what is this now, 25 years ago, this mm-hmm. movie? That was not common at all to yeah. even, I don't think, you know, the whole intimacy coordinator concept had even come around yet. Mm-hmm. And they said they filmed that sex scene, they deliberately shot it as one long take, so nobody could go afterwards and insert gratuitous mm. nudity and mm-hmm. that kind of, you know. Shot they, of a boob. The shot producer of a, yeah. would take mm-hmm. it and like, okay, we're going to cut this in, we're going to sex it up and yeah. everything. Um, and they didn't do that. Now, ironically, because of that, the the ratings board almost gave this an NC-17 <laughs> because they said it looked too real. Hmm. And they were like, basically, the Wachowskis have said, the, the censored board told them, it looks like she's really fingering her. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to tone it down a little bit, but yeah. And yet we don't have that conversation when it's a, it like he, it looks like he's really fucking her. Right. That no, that's not, that. that's not an <laughs> issue. <laughs> okay. Um, the other thing I'll say is just since we're there, and I mentioned Susie Bright, Susie Bright also got, and this is a direct quote, real live San Francisco dykes to fill out the bar scene. Mm. You know, it was like that. So that was like, you know, authentic lesbian bar. Mm -hmm. And Lana Wachowski says that Dino De Laurentiis, that was like the biggest fight they had over it. The producer, because he was like, those are not lesbians. Oh, he wanted pretty Hollywood <laughs> He wanted lesbians. pretty hot. Mm-hmm. She said <laughs> she said that he gave her like a book, a casting book, and it was like all supermodels and stuff. <laughs> it's like, these are what lesbians look like. <laughs> so yeah, they, they stuck to their guns on that stuff. <laughs> now, I'm assuming you found this movie pretty hot. I mean, yeah, those are two very attractive women. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so it's not leery and it's not male gaze, but this movie is pretty hot. It is hot. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, well, I mean, I've had a crush on Jennifer Tilly for a very like she's just. I find her and she was fascinating, amping that up. So I mean, the voice, <laughs> and they were both very like mouthy the whole time. Like Gina Gershon's lips are already like fairly yeah. prominent, but mm-hmm. both of them were like the, their mouths, and then the whole scene where like she's showing her the tattoo on her boob. <laughs> And it's, like, look just low enough where you don't see nipple, but you see, like, this huge fucking yeah. boob. And it's just like, well, yeah, that's fucking hot. And so... <laughs> and then, as everyone has talked about, and as the Wachowskis are very clear that it was all intentional, the hands, the hands throughout were, yes, this movie. played a big, big role. You know, I think somewhere in the interviews I read, you know, one of them basically said, you know, the hand is the cock. Yeah. As far as this. Like, the hand is the sex organ. And this movie played into that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes almost comically. Well, okay, so... <laughs> What's funny about these two films is both of them prominently feature sinks (laughs) in very different ways. (laughs) So in Blood Simple, uh, that last scene where uh, Francis McDormand's character shoots Visser through the door, he lands on the floor of the bathroom and like he's looking up and his view is is of the dripping sink. So you have the wetness of the sink, but it's a very different (laughs) vibe. It almost looks like a gun sort of coming down at him. Whereas with Bound... (laughs) Uh, so Jennifer Tilly's character creates this whole ruse where like, oh, I dropped my earring down the, the kitchen drain. Can you come and get it out for me? And so we see Gina Gershon with her hands <laughs> and this like dripping wet pipe. Like, I don't even know that sink pipes get that damn wet like yeah, that. Yeah, there's a lot of condensation there. <laughs> and she's like twisting the pipe and, and it's a perfect shot because you have Gina Gershon sort of knelt down and we're looking at her from we're under the sink. looking out from the sink, right. right. And so the, there's this wet, just dripping pipe and she's just manipulating it with her hands and then to the side of her you just see Jennifer Tilly's legs yes. and it's this, this, this short, short skirt, skirt with these you know 
perfect stockings and it's just a like obvious visual metaphor for like sex right like right. she's wet and that's um so yeah but i was i just thought it was interesting that like they both featured sync types yeah. um but in very different ways <laughs> okay so let's we don't have to go through the whole plot here but so the basic setup is jennifer tilly is living with this low-level mobster mm-hmm. caesar played by joe pantaliano joey pants <laughs> And then Gina Gershon's Corky is a handy woman, I guess, sure. is what she is. She's Ex-con. She's fixing up the apartment next door to them for the owner. Mm-hmm. And yes, she's she's just got out of prison. The second they meet in the elevator, that it's palpable. The attraction yeah. kicks in. And again, like I said, Jennifer Tilly is playing that to mm-hmm. eleven. She and this is where I think the expectation is she's going to turn out to be evil, right? Because she, it's it's not even subtle. No, she is like no. from the second she sees Corgi, she Vi is trying to seduce her. Mm-hmm. She shows up at her door with coffee, wearing that little fuzzy sweater, perfect Angora crop sweater. <laughs> it's such a great look with the tight jeans. She looks great and low cut, obviously. I immediately started searching for a cropped Angora sweater. And no, I will not look like Jennifer Tilly in that sweater. I mean, I not, no, like, I support I support. Like, I need this a plan. cropped Angora sweater. <laughs> you want a cropped Angora sweater? I will buy you a cropped Angora sweater. <laughs> but yes, continue, sorry. No, that's all right. <laughs> so did you, did you buy the relationship? So it's fast. It is fast, and it's... I mean, yeah, so it's fast, and I, I guess that works... In that it does play then into our expectations of like, okay, nobody falls in love with somebody this quickly or feels this deeply about someone this that that immediately. So obviously it's a con, like obviously it's a manipulation. But they also sort of what's that term like put a lampshade on it a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So when they start to talk about robbing Caesar, Gina Gershon has this whole thing where she's like, it's one thing like I can have sex with somebody I met five minutes right. ago. Right. She has this whole thing where she says stealing is like right. sex. Stealing she is says, like sex. You know, you, you get together and you talk about it and that's like foreplay. And she even says there, like, it's like you're getting wet talking mm-hmm. about doing it. But then she says, yeah, she says. To actually commit a crime with someone, like, I need to know you like I know myself. Right. Um, and there's been this whole sort of dance between the two of them. They say a couple of times, like, I see myself in you or you, I, mm-hmm. like, we're the same. And so I think. They- the, I like the first one of those conversations because Gina Gershon says. She kind of accusingly she says, oh, you're going to tell me that there's a dyke inside mm-hmm. of you that's just like me. Mm-hmm. And Vi says, no, she's nothing like you. She's, she's smarter. smarter. Yeah. Which <laughs> I think turns big, out to be true. Yeah, she is smarter. Yes. So, yeah, it's it's definitely, it happens really quickly and it seems very convenient, but it didn't bother me. Like it was, I didn't feel like it was then false once you found out that she, that they actually did have feelings for each other. Right. I mean, I think... I think it is very consciously playing on that kind of noir Mm -hmm. thing where it's like if it was a man and a woman and that attraction was there, you know, I think there are any number of noir movies where this sort of thing happens and you Mm -hmm. don't question that it's not developed more, that there isn't more conversation around it. You just accept that acceptance. I almost feel like that in a way too is playing, is sort of subverting the expectations because I think something about it being two women you expect more character development mm. or something you mm-hmm. expect more emotion emotional sharing yeah. Yeah. and all of that and i like the fact that this movie doesn't do that this right. movie plays it you know the same way it would if it was any other right. noir story right plays it straight where it's just play quote unquote <laughs> <laughs> and in fact gina gershon says something like oh it's one thing i hate about sleeping with women is all the the know, talking and the talking and the sharing you, yeah. and the like fuck that shit <laughs> But yeah, do you do you trust it? 
mm-hmm. in this movie. Mm-hmm. So for most of the film, I didn't. Okay. I thought it was a lie. I think there are a couple of times where we see Jennifer Tilly react when Corky's not there. Mm-hmm. In a way that she would react to like, oh, I just had a fight with my lover. or Oh, I really do have feelings for that person. And so then you go, oh, maybe she, because there's no reason for her to be acting in that moment because Corky's gone or Corky's not in the room. Right, right. Um, so there were a few sort of feints at that throughout the film. It's like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is real. And they do, she does actually have well, feelings I for think, her. Well, I think there's also at least one moment where we're not sure Corky yeah. is completely in on this. Like, th- I think there's a moment where we think Corky could take the money and run. Mm-hmm. And leave Vi behind. So we're not 100% sure about Corky's feelings either. Yeah. All right. Well, what about what about Joey Pants? I loved Caesar. <laughs> Caesar could have easily have been dumb. That's what I like about this movie. And he wasn't. No. He was very smart. Because the plan is, okay, so there's, there's a complicated thing where somebody's been skimming money. Mm-hmm. They get the money back. The big mob boss is coming to pick up the money. And that's where Vi says, we can just take that money. We take the money. The money's gone. Caesar's going to have no choice but to run. Right. Because the mob is going to assume he stole the money. That's the plan. And that's the big heist. And I like that the big heist comes almost exactly halfway through this movie. Mm. Because that's, you know, normally that's what you would be building up to. But no, that's just kind of the beginning Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. what happens in this movie. But Caesar doesn't fall for that. No. See, the first thing Caesar says is, they want me to run. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't know it's Vi doing it, but he's figured out, this is what they expect me to do, and I'm not going to do that. He's he's too smart for this plan. Right. So she tries to make it so that he thinks Chris Maloney's character is the one that stole the money (laughs) and is trying to set him up because they have long-running sort of beef. And so he basically is like, well, I'm just going to call his bluff. Yeah. And I'm not going to run. And so there's just this whole... And he even suspects a little bit that Vi is, is somehow involved Johnny in somehow, it. Yeah. That there is something going on. And it's almost the same thing. When we talked about Blood Simple, it's like had the characters that didn't know that Visser existed. Mm-hmm. Corky is not on his radar screen. Right. So he knows there's something going on here, but he doesn't know about Corky. Right. He has only met Corky very brief in a very, what turns out to be a very funny scene. <laughs> Earlier, where Corky and Vi are, have, I think that's the first time they yeah. they start to make out, right? Mm-hmm. And then he comes in, and he's angry because he thinks Vi's with somebody, but then he realizes... It's a woman. It's a woman. So he's like, oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. It was dark in here. I didn't realize. And then he shakes her hand. <laughs> and he shakes her hand. It's the hand she was using just, just for his girlfriend with. It's great. Yeah. But basically, he doesn't... He isn't... No. Thinking about Corky. No. It doesn't even occur to him that Corky's involved. Mm-hmm. So she's the missing element. She's the piece he's not putting together. But everything else, he's he's very smart about. Yeah. I like the fact that uh, Caesar, who is, you know, the money launderer, ends up literally <laughs> laundering the money. It almost it reminded me of that scene in Office Space where they're like, we Looking don't have, up. We don't actually money know laundering. what money laundering yeah. is. <laughs> it, it's almost like how they got this script out of it because it's like, okay, the money is covered with blood. Yeah, at we this gotta point. actually literally Caesar wash has this to money. literally and launder the money it. and hang it hang up. It on and the line. Iron it. Yeah. It's a nice touch. Yeah, I mean, that whole sort of sequence once he decides that he's not running and he needs to put sort of various pieces into place. So you have the mob bosses coming into town and they're going to be looking for it. Then cops show up eventually uh, it's this weirdly sort of macabre just like almost silly like just movement of bodies and yeah. hiding and so it's almost comical but it's also like there are dead people <laughs> at least there are dead people it's like 
at that point so many right. dead people and a blood soaked carpet and, yeah. and all these other things and there's there's he's he has a gun pretty much on him the entire time so there's always this threat that either Vi could be killed or someone else in the in the apartment can be killed but it's also just funny because he's just running around like a madman trying to save his ass essentially and try to figure all of this out mm-hmm and he actually doesn't figure it out until Vi makes the mistake of calling mm-hmm. Corky. You know, again, these apartments are right side by side. I like that scene where they're on different sides of the wall and they're touching the through hands, the wall, yeah. the hands again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, he walks in just when she's calling Corky. Yeah. And now he knows someone else is involved. Well, he thinks she's called like the big boss and basically told everything. And he hits redial. Yeah the like best and worst invention of all time <laughs> and he hears the phone ring on the other side of the wall and he realizes that she has been talking to corky and corky well, he says who's o- who's yeah. over there he doesn't even, again he still doesn't even know it's corky but yeah yeah is there this is a side note is there something to make of those two apartments being so different um because vi and caesar's apartment is very sl- clean yeah. and modern and bright it's all chrome and yeah and then the apartment cork it's not actually her apartment it's the apartment she's, she's working on next yeah. door is this kind of vintage much more feminine space actually. much more feminine space yeah. yeah yeah i mean yeah i'm sure like those choices are not made without intention but yeah i mean it is something to have corky in that space where the, like the wallpaper was you know red and very floral mm-hmm. and ornate and then vi and, and uh caesar space like you said is much more modern almost 40 sort of feel they're apartment actually reminded me a little bit of some of the aesthetic you see in the matrix when they're actually in the matrix like mm-hmm. when they're in mm-hmm. what is quote unquote the real world but is not the real world um these like moody sort of 40s ish sleek spaces so yeah i think it, again it's another sort of subversion of our expectations and that you would expect vi to be in the apartment in the that's more very floral space. and feminine and it's quirky and maybe there's something there about Vi's desire to sort of escape that hyper-masculine. But like she's trying to get out of what right. is a hyper-masculine environment. Like she wants to get out of the mob, is like family or whatever. She wants to get away from Caesar and go to this much more feminine space with Corky. Well, or is it also, It could. I think it also could be a warning about Vi, mm. right? The fact that we think Vi is feminine and more the more submissive, mm-hmm. the more... And she's really not. No, no. She's kind of ruthless and she's very smart. And Corky, though she appears very tough, actually does fall in love with Vi very mm-hmm. quickly. She is very sentimental. And so I think that I think that contrast mm-hmm. is interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're not we're not going through the plot very closely here, but I, <laughs> but yeah, so at the, at this point Caesar figures out what's going on more or less. And we've got he's got Corky tied up on the floor, right. threatening her. And I think that's where we first see Vi. Like, Vi is so calm she's and controlled yeah. in that scene. Yeah. And she's like, Caesar cut the shit. Right. Like, He's not going to kill you because he doesn't know where the money is. <laughs> You're fine. Yeah. Let's make a deal. Mm-hmm. She's completely in control of that situation. Yeah. Um, to the point, I think, where she's a little terrifying. <laughs> I mean, she's definitely, like, this is a woman who's been underestimated Yeah. for the entire time she's been in that space with him and with those people. Like, they all think that she is... Submissive, sensitive, vulnerable Vi. Needs to be taken care of. Right. All the other mobsters are, are like very, very... both paternalistic and also... Yeah. Are you okay, Vi? Do you need you anything, know, Vi? Lusting after her at the same time. Right. And don't think that she's capable of much. Yeah. And she's clearly been listening and learning this. At the end of the movie, nobody... It, 
you know, at the end of the Nobody movie, Caesar's her. dead. Yeah. None of the they other monsters, it doesn't even occur to them no. that Vi could be involved yeah. in any way. She's like, yeah, no, I want to get out. Yeah. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that torture scene is good. And I actually, it you know, it calls back to the, earlier in the movie, we've seen Johnny beating on Shelly. Mm-hmm. Johnny and Mickey, who's Mickey's sort of the, the higher up guy, um, beating on Shelly, the guy who stole the money. Which I love that scene too, where it's... Corky is in the apartment next door working on the bathroom. Mm-hmm. This is your thing with bathrooms again, right? <laughs> and she hears the banging and the banging, the vibrations from the beating Shelly's taking in the room next door are coming through the pipes mm-hmm. and like vibrating the water in her toilet in there. And then the Wachowski's cut from that toilet to the one in the room next door that's starting to fill up with blood because right. Shelly's getting beaten. It's a great scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they start cutting off Shelly's fingers. <laughs> so now coming back to the scene where Caesar's trying to find out where his money is, threatening to do the same thing to... Bye. But again, the whole thing with hands in this movie, mm-hmm. and again, it's very deliberate. It's, you know, that's a castration scene mm-hmm. is that he's threatening to cut off her fingers. Mm-hmm. Um so Vi fakes a phone call from Mickey, and then somehow that distracts Caesar enough that Corky's able to get free. And then they have a fight in the apartment next door. This is where I lost faith in, because this was not a good plan on Corky's part at that point. Mm. Caesar comes in looking for the money out of the paint cans, and she's just kind of lurking there with a pipe to club him <laughs> over the head. That does not go well. No. Uh, but then Vi comes in with the gun. Mm-hmm. And Caesar underestimates her for the last time. Yeah. He basically says, "He says I know you. I know you can't do it. You can't shoot me." And You're she's like, "You don't know me. shit." <laughs> and she shoots him. She shoots the shit out of him. And it's a great shot. Well, I appreciate her because people in movies do this like one shot bullshit. I'm just like, no, you need to shoot people multiple <laughs> times. Um, <laughs> but she shoots him multiple times. Um, and he falls back on the spilled white paint. Yeah. And so you just got these like splatters of red in this white paint. It's a great shot. Yeah, no, it is. And then that's basically it. They've, yeah. they've gotten away with it. There's, there's some threads dropped here. There's mm-hmm. some, unexp- like, I don't know what they do with Caesar's body. I don't know what they did with any of those bodies. They were all just piled up in the tub. Yeah. So yeah, somebody's going to be finding that. That was, there's some. Later. There's some unanswered questions here at the end. Yeah. Because basically they still end up telling the mob the Caesar took the money right. and ran story. Right. Uh, it's it's unclear how they sell that. And it's unclear what they, because they need to make Caesar's body completely disappear mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really get that part of no. the plan. No. But that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. And then we just basically have them running off. Happily ever after yeah. together. Now, so here's my question on that. Do you think it is? Do I think it's happily ever after? Yes. Uh, for a while, probably. <laughs> um, I do think that they are attracted to each other. Mm-hmm. Will that last forever? Mm, I don't know. It's not a... And they got $2 million, so that's a Strong foundation help. for a relationship. Um, $2 million is like... And this is the thing, like, yes, that's a lot of money that would be wonderful to have. It's not that much money. <laughs> It's not rest of your life Right, money. it's not rest of your life money. So you do have to figure something out at some point. So, you know. Jennifer Tilly has said she does not think the relationship is going to last. She said, and I think this was in the commentary, she said, everyone's positive that they're so in love and they're going to live happily ever after. But I really think in Violet's nature, she's a predator. I mm. do not think it's going to end well. And I think that 
might be true, too. I can definitely see Violet basically saying, okay, we're going to have to kill and or rob someone else for a lot of money. <laughs> Neither of them are getting jobs. Um, <laughs> and Corky maybe not wanting to do that and yeah. feeling like I don't want to continue, like being on the run is not my thing. And so she... You don't see Violet just killing Corky at some point? I don't think she would kill Corky. <laughs> she would definitely leave Corky broke. She would definitely like take <laughs> money and go. But I don't think she would kill Corky. Okay, so this was a double feature, so got to ask the inevitable question. Mm-hmm. Which one did you enjoy more? That's, I mean, they're very similar, but they're very different. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I may have, like, bound better mm-hmm. just because it was, I, feel, I appreciate smart criminals. <laughs> but it's, it's tight. Like, Blood Simple is a, it's a really, particularly for, like, a debut film, it's really, really well done. And there were some scenes in there that I just loved. Um, yeah, it's hard. Okay. If you have to pull a job with anyone from these two movies, who's it going to be? I mean, Vi. <laughs> That's what I feared. You pull a job with Vi. <laughs> All right. Anything else to say about our noir Vember double feature? No, these were good choices. I'm glad that I watched them. <laughs> okay. I, I, I apologize to our listeners. It's never as much fun <laughs> when you like the movies. So we'll try to come up with something you're going to dislike for next time. That's, that's a very loving thing to do. Thank you. our show we want to thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the unenthusiastic critic while we were recording this episode the theater world learned of the death of one of its all-time giants the legendary composer and lyricist stephen sondheim so nakia you probably know where i'm going with this Mm -hmm. a musical (laughs) we haven't watched a musical in a long time have we because i said i was not doing any more musicals there are only so many ways i can say i don't enjoy musicals (laughs) Well, so actually, you'll be relieved to hear we are not watching a musical. In part because, except for West Side Story, which you've already seen, there aren't a lot of good film versions of Sondheim's work. Nice, thank you. And because this gives me the best excuse I'm ever going to have to show you one of my favorite movies, an odd little footnote to Sondheim's illustrious career. A clever, nasty little whodunit murder mystery that he wrote with actor Anthony Perkins called The Last of Sheila from 1973. Okay. Literally never heard of that film. (laughs) I love that movie. (laughs) We are on a roughly (laughs) bi-weekly schedule at the moment, so we'll plan on dropping that episode probably around the middle of December. Uh, The Last of Sheila is available to rent on Amazon, iTunes, and most of the other services, and seriously, if you haven't seen it, it's a good one. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can subscribe to the show, download additional episodes, leave us a comment, make a donation, or sign up to receive email notifications of new episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, which is another way to stay on top of our increasingly erratic posting schedule. Which is not my fault. I didn't want that to be on the record. I don't know why you got to... Because what? people probably think it's like, you know, the bitchy wife that doesn't want to watch the movie. Well, it's, it is. It's, no, it actually isn't. <laughs> it really isn't. No, that's on me. So. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. As long as it's not a musical. Okay, now we're doing Into the Woods. Or a romance, really. I don't really enjoy those. I'm trying to get out of this episode. Okay, let's get out of this episode. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. I do want to, so, 
I gave Ray and that whole crew a tough time about their stupidity mm. and slowness around committing crimes and or cleaning up crime scenes and then reflecting on it and then also watching Bound where you have two police officers who are literally like stepping in a pool of blood and don't know <laughs> and that don't they are notice doing it. it. Like I think cops solve like something like two to four percent. Yeah, no, it's not a crimes. high rate. And then that then reminded me of one of my favorite scenes in The Big Lebowski where his car gets stolen <laughs> and the dude asked the officer, like, like, what's the rate? Like, do you have any leads? On and the officer's, like, laughing. He's like, leads? Like, yeah, we have the whole crime lab working on it. And so... <laughs> they got us working in shifts. <laughs> and then, which then took me to your random watching of, like, Castle, where they had that big-ass, like, uh, what the fuck was it? What's that Tom Cruise movie? Minority Report oh, screen, yeah. where it's, like, all this shit. And just, like, oh, we can... Yeah, TV cop shows, they're... <laughs> They solve everything, first of all. And they have high-tech equipment and, yeah. In whatever bumblefuck town in Texas that was, and all that shit, you probably actually could get away with mopping that blood up with your shirt and just not, and burying a not-dead body in a field and then circling where you buried that body and no one would find it. And that's so... There aren't even any cops in Blood Simple, are there? I don't think so, No. No. And they're not really... Nobody in this movie is inbound is worried about the cops either. No, no, no. Well, they're the mob. It's the yeah. mob in Chicago, and so they're like... Right. No, we're not worried about the cops. Um, so I now retract that, like, it, you can be stupid or smart and probably get away with a lot of things. <laughs> okay, so we should... Uh, yeah, I don't want to test we should that theory do that. at all. Mm-mm. You just said we can get away with pretty much anything. Yeah, no, except if you are a black woman. <laughs> So I will not be testing that theory. Then they don't need the evidence. Right, then there's no evidence needed. 